So it, it's huge. I, I know two trips ago we brought some. We'll come now and we'll still see people reading those Bibles. But then we have people asking, hey, do you have Bibles? So this trip, we're going down in June, so that's going to help fund that. But thank you for your generosity. $3,500. We're going to be able to get them like three different translations. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We'll get them Bibles and then probably then some. But you guys met the mark and then some. So thank you. Thank you to Dean and Susan who lead the Ben there's and spearheaded all of that. But thank you for you guys for your generosity. Uh, but as we're here tonight, we're in a series called God's Love Language. Pictures worth a thousand words. And if you got a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, and as you're turning there, let me uh, again welcome back the ladies from Devoted. I'm not going to lie, there's like an intimidation factor, because I know I'm following on some preaching of some amazing women that were at that conference. They set the bar high, so let's see if I can make it over that bar. But I also realize I missed the layup, because uh, the weather has been nuts these past 48 hours, and I could have preached from, you know, James 1, where you're tossed to and fro by the wind with your undivided loyalty. I could have preached from John 3, where it talks about the Holy Spirit moves about like the wind, because... Nate was talking, my fence got blown over. I got, I got a project to work on tomorrow. But uh, yeah, so that was a missed layup. But tonight we're actually going to be in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. I'm reading now the New Living Translation. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from under your pew. There's no excuse. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. It says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Do you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin. And have become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that as that last verse spells out so clearly that we have the free gift of grace that sets us free from sin. And it's not through anything else but Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the opportunity we had tonight to remember that in communion. But I pray that we would be able to reflect on this passage and that your Holy Spirit would be here, God, to, to, to help us rightly divide the word of truth, to use me to speak it, God, so that we can apply it to our lives and become these slaves unto righteousness, Lord God, because it's in that that we find life. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. God, we ask to follow you closer and love you more deeply tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So we've been giving away, we've been in this series on love, and we've been giving away these Starbucks cups and Starbucks gift cards. And tonight, as I said, we celebrated communion. I cherish that. And, and Tim and Lynn Dodd, you might not know, every month they do all the setup for communion. They get here early. They go back into this hobbit hole back here and set it all up. So I want to bless them and thank them because really it's an unseen, behind-the-scenes gift they give us every month to do that. And uh, they bless us in that way, so I want to bless them and be a church that, that blesses them back. But again, we've been in a series called God's Love Language. 
picture's worth a thousand words, and it carries us from Valentine's Day and its cultural celebration of love to Easter and God's perfect demonstration of his love through Jesus Christ. And what Easter shows us and what 1 John 4, 8 tells us is that God is love. God is love. And if God is above our understanding, and if God is incomprehensible and his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and he is love, then does that put love on a similar playing field? Is that why we struggle through life to master this thing called love? It goes on in 1 John 4 to say in verse 19 that we love each other because he first loved us. And could it be that this is love in its proper order? That until we fully grasp God's love for us, we won't be able to operate in loving one another the way he's called us to do. But if it is all contingent on us understanding God and his love for us, then this quote from the late Billy Graham kind of throws a wrench in all of it. Because Billy Graham once said that God loves you. And he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about because there is no human love comparable to divine love. See, God is love. God loves us, and I think we understand that, but he loves us with this love that transcends anything we know or experience on our level of humanity. But I love that God in his grace, God in his love, he doesn't leave it transcendent and ethereal and too hard to comprehend. And one of the ways he does this in Scripture is he gives us metaphors and images of his love. He gives us pictures through metaphors and, and stories and passages. Why does he do this? Well, as we've shared, there's this quote from Aristotle that says, the soul does not think without a picture. And whether you've heard that quote before this series or not, you've probably heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, whether we can really uh, give a picture that value or not, pictures are very valuable. We've shared some of these stats that 90% of what's stored in our brains is images. That 70% of our culture... Check, check. We good. No, we ain't. Where's the worship, Mike? I'll preach off that. 70%, though of our culture is what's called visual learners. I'm just not gonna move. Again, 90% of what's stored in our brain is pictures. We learn using pictures. We remember using pictures. I'm not gonna forget Tyler's face as he came up here handing me that microphone. But people think using imagery. We learn using imagery. So God in his love in his grace and in his, in his understanding of how he created us, he gives us these images so that we can better understand his love. Like you may not remember the reference from two weeks ago that gives us the image of the potter and the clay, but you can remember the picture and the image. You can remember last week that we talked about that we're sheep and God is our shepherd, but you may not remember where the parable of the, the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go get the one is, but you can remember the image. You can remember the picture, and you can remember that it teaches us that, man, we're prone to wander, but we got a great God that's prone to pursue us. And, and we don't have faith in, in our perfect walk, but we have a perfect shepherd, as it says in Psalm 23. So in this series, we'll look at six images that Scripture gives us about God's love to hopefully give us a deeper, better understanding of his love. And then we'll talk each week about how that affects our love for one another. And as I said, we spoke two weeks ago about the fact that we're the potter, or excuse me, we're the clay, and God is the potter. That God created us as image bearers. That sin broke us, but our caring creator in love, that God in love calls us to conform back into his image. 
As it says in Romans 8, 29, to conform into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, the living picture of the invisible God. And then last week we talked about the sheep and the shepherd, that God, again, in his love, both leads us lovingly and pursues us persistently as we journey through life. Because again, as we talked about, we're compared to these sheep that are prone to wander. But tonight I want to talk about this picture of servants and a master, slaves and a master. You know, last week I joked that we had made it from a lump of clay to at least a living creature, uh, a sheep. And this year we get to make the leap from a dumb sheep to at least a human being. And this is a, a full sermon for another time, but I want to make this note, I want to make this point. Because I promised that we would take these pictures of God's love and apply them to our love. And even this jump from animal to human being, it teaches us something about our love. It specifically teaches us something about our sexuality. We've been opening these sermons with an Aristotle quote. And there was a commonly used phrase in ancient Greek culture that said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. The idea was that we as humans are much like animals. We're a collection of urges, and we act on those urges. We're hungry, we eat. We're sleepy, we sleep. We have the urge to have sex, we have sex. So a man in those days used to go out even to a prostitute and then think in his mind or say with his mouth, food for the stomach. I'm a collection of urges. When I have an urge, I act on it. And it's still, we might not say that, you've maybe never heard that in your life, but it's still a dominant view today. You get sex education that's based on this premise, well, kids are going to do it anyways. Right? It, 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 the very concept of abstinence or waiting until marriage is laughed at. Like this idea that we're a slave to our urges, like that's the voice of realism. But that's not realism. That's despair. That's low-grade hopelessness, that we're all slaves to urges that we can't overcome. We're basically animals. <laughs> when I was in high school in the late 90s, there was a song that in the chorus said, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, and you can deduce where they went to with that. But what if humans were created for more than just animalistic urges? You know, in the creation account of Genesis 1, God is bringing, again, like I talked about earlier, order out of chaos. We see that he creates animals first, and then he creates humans in his image. We talked about two weeks ago, he created us as his image bearers. And the author of Genesis 1 wants us to note this distinction, animals, humans. And we aren't called to live like animals. We're not just a slave to our urges. And when we live like animals in this way, a slave to our urges, we work backwards in God's creative order. We work the wrong way back towards the disorder that preceded it and preceded creation. Paul addresses this and more in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, he quotes this old phrase, Food for the stomach before he goes on in verse 19 to tell the church that their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. He reminds us what Genesis told us, that we were created for a higher purpose than just fulfilling our urges. We aren't just a home to a bunch of urges and impulses. We're called to be a home to the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, then there's far more to life than just the next fix or the next impulse, that we don't have to be a slave to it. Raj is going to grow up in a culture where he's told that he's a product of his urges along with a hundred other things about his sexuality. But I'll tell him that what's painted as sexual freedom is actually the belief that certain things are inevitable, that we're a slave to our urges. When we act like we're the sum of our urges, we're subtracting from who we really are 
by acting like what came before us in creation. And God calls us forward into greater freedom. It's not just that we become the sum of our urges, but we become a slave to our urges. But God offers us true sexual freedom, freedom from this view that we're all just basically animals. But that's a free bonus uh, sermonette. Tonight I want to transition from our image as sheep and a shepherd to slave and a master. And to transition, we looked last week at one of my favorite hymns. Actually, it is my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount. Those lyrics in Come Thou Fount where last week we hit on these words prone to wander because we are prone to wander like sheep that go astray. And thank God again that he is prone to pursue us when we do. And then he's prone to set us back on paths of righteousness and lead us gently as a shepherd does. Not driving us as a cattle uh, driver does, but as a shepherd does. And it's in that song in the same stanza where the, the writer says, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Again, like sheep, we're prone to wander. We talked about that last week. And what's the solution that he proposes? A fetter. Anybody know what a fetter is? It's like handcuffs, but for your, your legs, your ankles. There are chains involved. We're talking chains. Again, basically handcuffs for our ankles. That's not the most romantic imagery in our, in our hymn there. Like we love worship songs like Break Every Chain. It's about chains being taken off, not applying them. That's not exactly like the high point of, of what we would consider. So the hymn, though, it, it, it talks about these fetters as a mark of God's goodness. So is this off? Or does this teach us something about this image of a slave and a master and how it can actually be a picture of God's love. And to set the table for this discussion, I want to just consider Exodus. Consider Exodus, where at the beginning of Exodus, we see God's people in literal chains, driven out of fear of their large numbers that they were increasing and multiplying in population. The Egyptians and Pharaoh said, hey, we're going to put them under slave drivers. We're going to make them our slaves. And it says in the beginning of Exodus that they appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor and that they made their lives bitter, and they were ruthless in all their demands. Not only were they enslaved, but they were oppressed. A small-scale genocide occurs at the beginning of, of, of Exodus when Pharaoh calls for all the newborn boys to be thrown into the Nile, to be killed. And it's from this genocide that God delivers Moses, if you're familiar with the story. And when God confronts and calls Moses from the burning bush, many, many years later in Exodus 3, he says, in Exodus 3, verse 9, he says, Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. And so in the next chapters of Exodus, we read some of the most remarkable moves and miracles of God that we see throughout the entire Bible to drive them out of Egypt and out of slavery, we see the 10 plagues, we see the Red Sea, and the end result is God's people are delivered from slavery in Egypt. They're delivered out of that. And from this story and from this narrative, we see that it's given way to something that's called liberation theology. Now, liberation theology, it's a big thought to unpack in just a couple seconds, but it is the view that God is on the side of the oppressed and that relief from oppression is the goal of Christian work. 
that liberation from social and political oppression is the anticipation of ultimate salvation. And this pulls from this Exodus story that we see here, where the Israelites were oppressed by a political force, and then God comes to obliterate them and set his people free, not just in any fashion, but in dramatic fashion, in memorable fashion. And what it gets right is that God is against injustice, God is against oppression, whether cultural or judicial, political or private. And this is said, this is repeated, this is emphasized throughout Scripture. And it reminds us in a healthy way that our working out of our salvation and what God wants to do in us, it's more than just about personal piety, but it should address society and it should address systemic issues within our world, that God calls us to have an influence out there to be a light in darkness. But liberation theology, it often highlights the journey that we see here from oppression to freedom, but then it stops there. It doesn't give the full story. It overlooks the real purpose of Exodus because it wasn't just to get them out of Egypt. You know, when we teach the story of Moses to our kids in Sunday school, there's the old song that Steph randomly sings all the time. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, right? Oh baby, they throw that in there. Let my people go, and it's followed up with a huh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if James Brown wrote it and you're supposed to hit a moonwalk in the middle of it or what, but Moses says in this song, let my people go. And we end the quote there. It's all about freedom from slavery. But if God's plan was only to get them out of Exodus, then Exodus would have stopped there. But we get 25 more chapters of the book of Exodus. And why is that? It's because Exodus wasn't just about getting out of Egypt, but it was about getting to Mount Sinai. If you look at the beginning of Exodus and Moses confronting Pharaoh, Moses doesn't just quote God and say, let my people go, as we love to quote him. Moses says, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Why does he say that? Because God told him to. God had told Moses all the way back at the burning bush that he experienced at Sinai in Exodus 3.12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Some other translations use the word serve, and in Hebrew, this word literally is translated, be slaves to. So from the outset, it's made clear that the Israelites, they're moving from one form of slavery, serving Egypt, to another, serving the Lord. As one theologian once put it, Exodus is more a story of repatriation, that's a word for you, more a story of repatriation than emancipation. It's a movement from one servitude to another. It's a transfer of power from one master to another, granted an infinitely better master in our God and our Lord. But when you begin to see it, that it went far beyond just let my people go, you begin to understand God's love throughout Scripture because Exodus sets the stage for so much. You begin to understand the freedom that God gives us. You know, just like we talked about a couple weekends ago that our idea of love and our culture, it takes me as I am and then, you know, doesn't place any demands. We love a freedom that leaves us likewise with no demands, no commands, no directions. And we've defined freedoms or freedom in negative terms as an absence of constraints, as an absence of demands. We desire autonomy, perfect autonomy, independence. But if you look at the Bible, such freedom is an illusion spiritually. If one is not serving God, you'll serve something else. That genuine autonomy as we seek it, it's not an option. In, in 2 Peter 2.19, it says a man is a slave, a slave to whatever has mastered him. And Paul ultimately takes it a step further in Romans 6 that we just read. He spells it out in verse 16. 
that ultimately we're given two choices as masters in our life, either sin or obedience. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. He's saying there's no neutrality. There's, there's no autonomy. And Paul could have chosen many words to contrast to slavery to sin. He could have chosen righteousness, or he could have chosen God himself, but he chooses the word obedience. You know, there's a, a, an old pastor, literally an old pastor. He was a pastor during the time of, of the fight for American independence. And he put it this way. He said, perfect freedom consists in obeying. He says, where licentiousness, another word for disobedience, begins, liberty ends. So he's saying, hey, as we're fighting for this freedom, let's define it. We're not fighting for anarchy. He says, perfect freedom consists in obeying. Where licentiousness begins, liberty ends. Perfect freedom consists in obeying the right things. Now, that's counterintuitive to our culture where freedom is considered freedom from all constraints where we focus on the concept of freedom so much that we forget what it's for. And Samuel West, his words in that quote, it runs parallel to what we see in Scripture. It says in Psalm 119, verse 32, this is David writing, where he says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. David understood Samuel West, even across the centuries that separated them, that perfect freedom it consists of constraints. Perfect freedom isn't the absence of constraints, but finding the right ones, the ones that liberate us and give us life. Because if you've lived for any amount of time, you realize that acts done freely can, can oppress us, can lead to addiction, can, can break us. Like, I'm free to go live in the Sahara Desert for six months and just roll up in there. But uh, there's constraints on my body. I'm 60% water. That's not exactly a smart plan. It's it would tell me that that's unwise. And I can also just follow 100 different impulses over the course of my life. But as I found out as a teenager and as a young adult, that when you follow those impulses freely without respect to God's commands or his boundaries, you can become a slave to sin and addiction and alcoholism and, and habits that you can't break. But now I understand that, hey, boundaries are a blessing because you, pri what you will protect what you prize. And if you prize your freedom that God gives you from sin, then you'll follow his commands. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure you stay free. He's saying, respect the boundaries that God gives us and respect his will. You know, I remember a headline because it's impossible to forget from many years ago, probably like a decade ago. It was this guy who escaped prison uh, dressed as a woman. So I don't know how he got all the garb he needed and the makeup he needed to get out of prison dressed as a woman, but he successfully escaped prison dressed as a woman. That wasn't in the prison break plot. That would have been a lot easier than everything they tried for a full season to get out of prison, but he wasn't out of prison long because he had high heels on. Now, I've never walked in high heels, but it doesn't look like fun, and he couldn't figure it out. So as he was stumbling around looking like a, a dummy, he, people realized that ain't a woman, and he was found out, and he didn't make it far because he was trying to walk in heels. See, he broke free, but he didn't stay free because he couldn't walk it out. Similarly, so many Christians were set free by grace, and we know how to look the part. We know how to come on a weekend and raise our hands and say amen at the right times, but 
we can't walk it out or we don't walk it out because we won't walk in full obedience to Christ as Lord. You know, freedom, really life, is found in obedience to the right constraints. That's why Paul would open up Romans as well as his letter to to the church in Philippi and as well as his letter to Titus by addressing himself as a slave to Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't seem like the most effective opening sales pitch. Uh, If you're going to start a letter, that that wouldn't seem to be what you would lead with, this idea of being a slave. What's appealing about that? And, And then even think about how could a loving God call us slaves or desire for us to call ourselves slaves. And in our culture, uh, that is a, a troubling question because we're familiar with chattel slavery that happened throughout the, our, our history, really. But as these metaphors and pictures that we'll see in the coming weeks, one where it speaks of being a friend of God, one where it speaks of being a son of God, and one where it speaks of really the bride of Christ and Christ himself, We see that it's not chattel slavery as we know it in America because of our history, this inhumane, undignified, ugly, abhorrent, abusive ownership of another human being. Because in our modern understanding, a lot of the slavery spoken of in the Bible, really it looked a lot more like indentured servitude. Now, yes, chattel slavery rears its ugly head, but there is also indentured servitude. Now, that's a word study and a culture study that would take up more time than I have right now, but maybe you have a Bible And in the New Testament, it it uses the word servant instead of slave. I used to think, what, are they trying to just cover up some ugly reality by using another word rather than a word that would make me cringe? But you begin to look at this idea, and that's why, if you have a Bible that uses the word servant, that's why. But you could even ask still, why would a loving God want us to be servants? Why would a loving God ask me to be a servant, let alone a slave? But we see in Scripture that God trailblazes this path of servanthood, and he paints the picture of servanthood by walking in it first. In his love, God walked in those shoes first. Again, 1 John 4, 8 says God is love, and that same God, Jesus Christ, it says of him in Philippians 2, verse 6. Verses 6 through 8 is what I'm going to read, and it says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. We see that Jesus' love, we see that that God's love, it led to a cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news of God's love, that we were the ones owed a cross. We were owed damnation due to our sin and our brokenness, but Jesus Christ, in love, took on the humble position of a servant and a slave, even to dying the the death for us on a cross. God's love led to a cross. He took on the nature of slave for us, even unto a cross, for me and for you, to redeem you, to purchase our redemption. And when you see that word in the Greek, it speaks to this idea of buying back a slave. That, that God, through the cross, buys us back from sin and death and being a slave to, in bondage to sin. And that we've been freed from that. We've been set free. And now we serve God. And now we serve Christ because he served us first. We now give our lives for him because he did it first. See, we aren't just set free from sin, our proverbial Egypt, to live in a vacuum. We're led to obedience, our Mount Sinai. Again, perfect freedom is found in obedience, not just obedience to anything, obedience to God. 
Our love for God, it leads to a cross. Jesus said, hey, whoever wants to follow me has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. By definition, a cross is something we wouldn't choose to carry if we were left to ourselves. But it's our love for God and it's our love for others that calls us to endure crosses and carry crosses in our lives. And it's as we understand that God's love led to a cross. And it's as we understand that our love for Jesus calls us to pick one up that we begin to understand how we're called to love one another in this life. And this week, we're simply paced by this perspective that love leads to a cross. As we love others in this life, we have to understand that as we love somebody and commit to them in love, it's going to lead to some crosses. Just think about it. Love is a sacrifice. Love is investment. Love is giving of yourself. Love is looking to the interest of another. Love is laying down your life. Really, love is bearing a cross. It's why as I've started premarital counseling with two separate couples over the last two weeks, I've I've looked them in the eye and said, hey, before you plan your wedding and walk down that aisle and say those vows, you need to plan a funeral because you need to ask yourself, is this somebody I'm going to die for daily? It's a question, Ravi Zacharias, a great book. If you've got a kid that's about to start dating somebody or looking towards marriage, it's called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. It's a great book. But he poses this question for couples before they propose. Am I willing to die daily for this person? Because love It leads to a cross. It leads to sacrifice. It's deferring. It's dying to self. And love also has constraints. When you marry somebody, you choose to freely lay down some freedoms in the name of love. In love, you limit yourself freely. You choose freely to limit yourself so that you can experience deeper intimacy. When I said I do at the altar, I started saying I don't or I can't to other things. Just taking off on a whim, right? Steph and I now share a calendar. Usually before I say yes, if you've texted me, hey, can you meet up on such and such day? Let me check with the wife. Let me check the calendar, right? We share a bank account. So before I go blow money on this or that excursion, we talk, we share, we communicate. Some would call that a ball and chain. (laughs) But one of my favorite artists, he said, if my wife's a ball and chain, then boy, I love being a slave. And in terms of our love, and like we talked about earlier with our sexuality, it's infinitely better than being a slave to our whims and our impulses and whatever our next fix is. If I could have the worship team come up. There's a movie you may have heard of it called Princess Bride. And uh, in the beginning, uh, Buttercup, she has a, a servant. She calls him Farm Boy. She's always asking him to do stuff. And uh, all these various tasks. And time and time again, his answer is, as you wish. According to the narrator, it's all he ever said. No more, no less. And as the story goes, and as he says, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he really meant was, thank you. I know y'all seen it. Just speak up. Thank you. (laughs) This wasn't a man of many words. Again, per the narrator, all he ever said was, as you wish, no more. But his actions... And taking on the heart of a servant was a picture that painted a thousand words. He didn't have to do anything but serve and say, as you wish. And eventually it became clear to Buttercup it was love all along. It's this beautiful picture that love calls us to serve. But as beautiful a picture as that paints us, how much more beautiful is the picture that Jesus paints us? That he left heaven to serve humanity. That he took on the posture of a servant. He took on the position of a slave, even to the cross. For what? For you. For you, for me, to set you free so that you can freely serve God. And, you know, we get 
some pretty awesome descriptions of love in Scripture. You know, at weddings, when people get married, we hear 1 Corinthians 13. Or we might hear 1 John 4 where it talks about love and what love is. But we don't get a lot of measures of love in Scripture, like the how much. But we do get in, in John 15, 33, Jesus tells us that there's no greater love than this. This is the, the highest measure of love, laying down one's life for friends, serving others. There's no greater love. Deferring to others. There's no greater love. Looking to the needs of others. There's no greater love. And God is love. And I've said it before that we look most like Jesus when we serve. But if God is love, we have this picture where he took on the posture of a servant. And we also look most like God when we serve. Man, if, if you're going to apply this, whether you got a spouse or a roommate, you're living with somebody, make it your goal this week, this month, this year to outserve that person. Make it your goal this week to outserve your spouse. Not so that at the end of the week you can say, ha ha, I beat you, I outserved you, but because at the end of the week or at the end of that month or that year, you can say, I look more like Christ because he serves, because he takes on the posture of a servant. And that's love and that's freedom. We bear God's image best when we serve others in love. It's this unlikely almost incomprehensible, but beautiful picture of a slave and his master, a servant and his master. And it's made beautiful because God did it first. Jesus did it first. He walked as a servant first, serving all of us, each one of you individually and the entire world. And it's why there's power in the name of Jesus. It's why there's beauty in the name of Jesus. It's why there's freedom in the name of Jesus. So tonight as we close, we're going to come back and close in prayer. We're going to come back in, uh, in a time to just consider this and pray over our hearts and our minds. But can we worship Jesus here? Can we stand and worship this, this Jesus Christ who didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage? But he used it to serve us. It's this beautiful picture that we get to emulate, but we also get to praise him for. We get to take communion and remember him for. But we get to worship him every day for. And Levi's going to lead us and we're going to worship him right now. I love 